Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guests today both work with the Children's Home Society of Virginia, particularly with the My Path Forward program. We have Kim Lewis, a My Path Forward life coach, and Bruin Richardson, Chief Advancement Officer. Well, welcome, Kim and Bruin. I am so happy to have you here as part of our podcast series. What I'd like to do now is, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought somebody said something. All right, that's editing out. See, we're going to edit all that out. (laughs) Uh, What I'd like to do now is ask uh, each of you, if you would please share a little bit about yourself and how you are connected with the foster care system, and then we'll learn more about your organization. So Bruin, how about if I toss that to you first? Sure. My name is Bruin Richardson, and I am the Chief Advancement Officer here at Children's Home Society of Virginia. I was a lawyer for about 25 years practicing corporate law and decided I'd like to do something a little more uh, meaningful. And uh, so I, about four years ago, became associated with uh, Children's Home Society, which is a 120-year-old adoption agency, and had just at that time started a new program for aged out youth. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're fairly new to working with foster youth. Did you have any connection with foster youth before that in your, um, your law practice? I really didn't. Wow. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you made that change. All right. Well, Kim, how about you? Well, I was a teacher for many years. And during that time, I just came across a lot of families and, and children that just were really struggling and their family dynamics, and it just gave me pause to think that I could do a lot, be a lot more effective with them if I reached them in the home, not just within the school system. So I went back and got a degree in counseling and became a family counselor, and it so happened that during that time, a lot of the families that I worked with were either at risk of losing their children to foster care or the children were already in the foster care system. And I just ended up, you know, being one of the counselors that worked with them. And along that time, my husband and I also decided to be foster parents, which we did for a while. And so that just has kind of led me to the uh, program that Bryn was referring to here at Children's Home Society started about four years ago. So I came in within like a couple of months after that program had started, which is my path forward, but uh, came in after that to be the life coach for the program to help the youth who are aging out of the system. All right. Well, now that you've mentioned the program, My Path Forward, I'm really anxious to learn more about it. So if you could please, one of you share first, what does Children's Home Society of Virginia do? And then what does My Path Forward do? It's only been in existence four years, but how did it start and how is it going? Sure. Well, I'll start out with just letting you know a little more about Children's Home Society. As I mentioned, we're a 120-year-old adoption agency. Starting in the 90s, we began to really focus on adoption of kids out of the foster care system and have continued to focus more on the kids who've been in the system for the longest and teenagers. And so in conjunction with that, we also have what we call a post-adopt program 
which serves families who have adopted and helps them to learn how to parent children who have been exposed to chronic trauma through much of their lives. And so through those two programs, began to notice and and be very concerned by the number of kids who were aging out of the foster care system. Virginia, unfortunately, is uh, once again 50th in the country for the rate at which children age out of the foster care system. And so we saw this as a a solvable problem, ultimately. And with our partner, the Better Housing Coalition, came together and developed this program, which was called the Possibilities Project initially, but now we've rebranded it as My Path Forward. And we created that program. As Kim mentioned, she was really with the program from day one. And I'll kick it over to Kim to talk a little bit about what we actually do in that program. Okay. In this program, we want to focus on really wrapping these uh, young people with services in a variety of ways instead of just focusing in on one area, which we know several agencies or uh, different organizations may do, but we try to uh, look at the whole person and a lot of different areas in which they would need support in to become you know, a successful adult. So we kind of look at some six main service areas, and that would be with the stable housing to look at their post-secondary education or vocational training, you know, whichever path they would like to take, their employment, look at financial capability and make sure that they understand things about money management, budgeting, and how to work with paying the rent and those kind of issues. Uh, we also help them in being connected to mentors who could really help them either personally or maybe professionally, uh, help them in a particular area, and then also helping them to access and manage their physical health and their mental health and keep those, you know, up to date and how to do that. So we take all of those different areas, and then when we bring them into the program, they have some intensive case management and life coaching to where that they meet with us usually on a weekly basis until they become a little bit more independent. And we help connect them to the different places and people that they need to be connected with to achieve the goals that they come in with. So all of that is within the umbrella of Children's Home Society of Virginia, or is that done in all of those areas by partnering with organizations or agencies in Virginia? Is is it all under your umbrella and with your staff, or is it external? It's it's really a combo. We're very lucky and blessed that our original partner in this was the Better Housing Coalition. And so they're our housing partner, and they provide the housing for the youth in our program. For things like uh, financial stability training, we've partnered with uh, SunTrust, now Truist Bank, and Kim maybe can talk about some of the other partnerships that we have as well. And then that was a good question about how we are connected because we do a lot from the staff within house. We do a lot of individual work with them. But as Bruins mentioned, we do have a lot of community partners. And though he mentioned at least two of those and some others have been for the educational part. We have a great partner in Great Expectation, which it helps help give them educational guidance within the community colleges here in Virginia. So that's been a great partner for them. We also have other different personal mentors that we connect with 
that helps them with a chosen field that they have, like if they are in the culinary field. We've had mentors that help them learn more, get more connected with other employment opportunities, and just uh, networking with them. That would just be an example of like one area we might find mentors with. We've had people come in and do workshops for employment skills. The Success Foundation has been a great volunteer partner with us that is uh, helping meet with our participants on a one-on-one basis, plus giving workshops on employment skills, strategies, you know, within interviews and connecting them to other resources here and employers that they know could help them in the different fields that they'd like to go into. So we have been able to find several community partners like that to help us, even within employment readiness. Goodwill has been one of those. Virginia Workforce Resource Center has been another one that's helped us with job readiness. One other thing I'd add is that it's important to note that in our program, the youth are in two-bedroom apartments, and those apartments are sort of spread out in a uh, campus of the Better Housing Coalition. You know, it's not a congregate care kind of situation. Our goal is for each of our youth in the program to learn to become independent adults. So we think it's important to put them in that kind of setting where they truly are learning the kind of life skills they're going to need to be independent going forward. Right. Now, mentioning the apartments, do you have someone who lives in the apartment and serves as kind of like a an RA, if you will, um, on site, somebody who's there to manage the home or manage the apartment building and is there to answer questions and to help the young people? Or are they really on their own and somebody just checks in them periodically to, to be able to assist? They are on their own. We do not have someone who lives down there at the apartment complex, but the case manager and I are down there almost every day. So we are around. We meet with them in person there. Uh, We also provide transportation. I didn't mention that before, but we provide transportation for them if they do not have their own. So that's a lot of contact with them, too, isn't even transporting them to school or work. So we are in face-to-face contact with them a lot, even though we don't have someone living there on site. Okay. Now, just to maybe get a clearer picture, you said your 50th in the number of young people aging out. Does that mean you have the lowest number, I assume? No, it means we have the highest rate of young people aging out. So the rate of young people who age out in Virginia is somewhere between 20 and I think 22%. That's the worst percentage in the country. It equates to about somewhere between 450 and 550 youth every year aging out of the system in, in Virginia. And how many of these young people are you able to help, let's say, on an annual basis? It varies some. The program generally is designed to last about two years, but sometimes it's a little shorter and sometimes it can be a little longer. And so there are folks coming and going. In this last year, I think we were providing either the housing and full supports or some other limited supports to about 42 youth over this past fiscal year. We can house 10 at any one time in our housing, but we're actually in the process of expanding, and we're hopeful that by the end of this next fiscal year, we'll be up to being able to serve 20 at one time in the housing. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. 
Why does Virginia have such a high rate of aging out? I'm just curious, do you have any ideas as to why such a high percentage? Well, I, I think it has, and, and we'll, in a little while, we'll, we'll talk about some of our advocacy initiatives that, that we have been pursuing in, in the General Assembly. But the system, to be honest, has been chronically underfunded for many years. And what that has resulted in is pretty low pay for the social workers, very high caseloads, a lack of coordinated and good training. You know, the training is good, but sometimes with the degree of turnover that we have in the system because of the low pay and because of the high stress and workloads, they never get all the way through the training because it's a two-year training cycle. So we have been working on some reforms in the, in the foster care system, both in increasing the pay of our social workers, doing things to lessen the caseloads that they have, improving their computer systems, which are fairly antiquated at this point, and then creating a training academy, which would do all the training up front, which would then allow them to feel more like they're um, right on top of the game from, from the day they walk in. The social workers are put in a very difficult position. Right. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. You know, it, it's not their fault. They're walking into a system that's kind of almost set up to fail in some ways. I, I hate to say that, but it's it just seems to be the case. And that's why we think that systemic change is really the main way that we can approach this issue. The work that we do with the young people in our program, we are extremely proud of, and, and we've had some wonderful successes. But if we don't address the systemic issues, we're going to continue to have the same problems. Right, exactly. I mean, ideally, you would be out of a job in that young people wouldn't be aging out of the system, right? That's our goal. Let me ask you this. You had mentioned six areas that really you really focus on, housing, education, employment, finances, connections, and physical and mental health. Do you see any particular priority order? I understand they are all important. But do you see, you know, kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Is there something that needs to be done first and then the next thing and then the next thing in order to be able to build towards success? Or do you think that all of these things really need to be worked on at the same time? I'm just thinking of people who are out there starting programs. They're wondering what to incorporate. What's the biggest impact, for example? Is it education? Is it housing? Is it you know, life skills? What is it? So what would you say to that question? How would you answer that? Yeah, I'd like to take that one. <laughs> I would think, and what we've even discussed here and what we have seen and the background that our staff has had in working with this population that stable housing is just crucial to being able to get the mental health where it needs to be to focus on all these other goals. We find them bouncing from place to place, being homeless. And when your mind and your body is in that type of position, all you can think about is survival. And when you're only thinking about survival every day and you've already been through trauma, your brain is just in a shutdown mode. And with it being shut down, and we're just thinking about survival, then it's very hard to focus on bigger goals in life. So that's why our partnership with the Better Housing Coalition has been so important and vital to us, for us to have a partner who's very concerned about this too and willing to coordinate with us a housing that we can help afford for them 
as they're learning how to pay rent, you know, and do those things for housing in the future. So we feel like that the stable housing and knowing that they don't have to think about where they're going to be that night or two weeks from now and what happens if grandma, you know, kicks me out or my friend tells me to leave or not have a roof over your head at all is very crucial. And then right along tail with that, as long as we see them starting to get a little bit more stable in their thinking, then their mental health issues and the trauma that they've been through really needs to be addressed. Because if they can't have emotional stability kind of regulated and already being worked on, it's still very hard to focus in on going to school or keeping your job, working with your coworkers, your boss. All of that is very contingent upon our emotional stability. And so I would think that those two issues are very crucial to the next. But as we focus in on that, we ride along with that, do start playing with them about their goals, especially educational, because we know that's going to be the key to their employment afterwards and where they would be able to have a sustainable lifestyle. And if we don't get that going pretty soon, they may not be able to accomplish as much as they want to while they're in our program. So that educational you know, piece is important. But that housing you know, and emotional stability, we feel like is really key. Right. And that I've heard from so many different organizations, that same perspective, which makes me wonder, do we need, I'm just thinking of how do you solve this, right? You have so many young people coming out of foster care and they need some kind of housing, transitional housing, whether it's they're going right into their own apartments, they need housing. So what's the solution? Do we encourage people to start organizations that focus on transitional housing for young people? I mean, is that something that would be seen as a priority? Do we encourage people to partner like you have with organizations like the Better Housing Coalition? What, what do you think would be a way to solve this problem if the government can't provide the housing? How do we solve it? I do think that partnering, fi- finding a partner like the Better Housing Coalition, who is their whole mission is affordable housing, partnering with someone like them, but also providing, as, as Kim said, the, the mental health and the supportive programming is really, really important. Because what I always say is the housing is absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. You have to have that, those other elements. And, and we've seen that here in, in Virginia. There have been some programs that the state has uh, put together where there's some HUD money being used and Young people are basically just given a check and given an apartment, but there's no support really given. And that just doesn't work either. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So I wonder if it's a matter of providing incentives for this type of partnership or arrangement. You know, how do, how do we encourage people to build more of these models? Well, I do think the state, frankly... And again, with our advocacy efforts, one of our next steps is to talk to our state legislators about providing more support for this population of folks who have aged out and having it be enough to at least partially support programs like ours. Um, Our program, 
at least um, up until now, has been about 95% supported through philanthropy. But that's hard over time. You, you can do that through a startup phase, and we, we just were very fortunate to get a pretty substantial grant from a family foundation that is going to allow us to do this expansion that we talked about. But in the long run, there has to be a commitment from the state who, who said when they took these, these young people who had been subjected to abuse and neglect into their care, that they were going to do a better job to take care of them than their parents did. Well, if that's true, then it doesn't just end at 18. Even though we're kind of looking on the line of partnerships with other people and other groups, which is very key, as Bruno is talking about, I also personally kind of would wish that as they turn 18, and if they're in a foster family especially, I wish that there was more emphasis on even being able to stay within that home longer, that they could stay another year, two years to provide that housing and and keep that relationship going. I've run into many situations where that young person had a fairly good relationship with the foster family. Some of them were very close. Others were, you know, pretty good. And then some just said it was okay. But if it was okay, then that's another supportive relationship plus the housing and a little bit of accountability that I think could all be used for the positive if they could even just stay in that location, you know, for a little bit longer. And I, when I was working with a, in another agency that was a therapeutic foster care agency, uh, we tried to advocate for that quite a bit. And for several places, you know, it worked out well. You know, if they had a, agreeable relationship, then that young person was able to stay in that home. And it really benefited them in the long run. It just seems like that would behoove everyone, you know, if they could work, you know, work on pushing that and advocating for that type of situation for a little bit longer. Right, exactly. Because you're still serving the youth, right? It's not like... Yes. <laughs> It's not like you're, I, I realize they want more beds, right? They want to put another young person in, in that bed, but you're still serving the foster youth that you took responsibility for by allowing them to stay longer and really get established as a young adult. Yes. Well, I see articles come across and it seems like this whole tiny home idea has gained some traction with people who want to help young people aging out of foster care. And I'm just wondering what you think of the whole tiny home movement. I, I think it's kind of, it's novel. It's kind of interesting. They're tiny little apartments. Um, they might be easy and quick and cheap to build. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I really don't know too much about that. That would sound to me rather interesting to look into, but I, I really don't haven't heard that much about that. I haven't either, and I, and I wonder if it, in the long run, would be any cheaper than, you know, having a good, solid partner who is um, is in the affordable housing market. Yeah, I was just curious of what you might have thought. It just seems like it, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, small organizations that might be able to build, you know, like one or two to help a couple of young people um, through the transition. But, you know, it, I did want to ask the Better Housing Coalition, just to help people understand what they do. You, you said um, 
they're already providing housing, right? Low income housing, you said. There, well, it's it's um, a, a variety. Okay. Some of their, some of their housing is um, is low income. Some of it is senior housing. Some of it is market rate. They have a, a real mix of what they provide in a number of uh, various settings throughout the Richmond region. And how did you connect with them? How, how did you find each other? Well, actually, there was a cocktail party. Um, <laughs> at, isn't, isn't there always? Um, that was put on by the Robbins Foundation. And the Robbins Foundation actually was one of our early supporters of this project. And uh, our CEO met their CEO at that cocktail party. And they began to talk about the issue that they were both concerned about, which was kids who were aging out. And they um, decided that they wanted to try to do something about it. And so an idea was born. So serendipity. Serendipity, but also it's always, you know, it's great when the found, one of the things that the foundation community can do very well is bring together, help to bring together like-minded nonprofits to partner. This is really one of the best examples of that that I've really ever heard of. Okay. So if somebody out there is like, wow, I really would like to partner with an organization like that, do you have any recommendations about how they can find a foundation or some kind of organization that might be able to help them with setting up some kind of housing program? You know, I would probably start if there's a community foundation in your community, starting there, uh, because they usually have a a pretty broad reach in terms of the kinds of things that they're supporting and the kinds of things that, that they're going to get behind and, and try to foster forward. And so, you know, I think that's where I would start. If there isn't a community foundation, maybe start with your United Way and see what kind of resources they might have available. You know, those kinds of organizations can really help you to partner, but and also to, you know, not um, reinvent the wheel. And that's one of the things we really try not to do in, in our program. That's why we have so many partners in the program is, is if there are folks who can help us do the work, we want to partner with them and, and not be recreating things that, um, that others can do. You know, our, what we see as our role here is to kind of be the hub and to be the catalyst and to help each of our youth in the program. And really, the, the reason we came up with the name My Path Forward is that our goal here is independence, but we recognize that the path to that goal is individualized. And it's, it's individualized for each of the young people in our program. So it, it doesn't look exactly alike for any one person, which is what I think is really important. Sure. Yeah, that makes the most sense to me as well. So when you have a young person who's been accepted, I, I'm assuming there might be some kind of application or review process. So they've been accepted because you can only take so many in a year. I would imagine there's some kind of assessment done. And then depending on their needs, you provide them with either housing or employment or finance or connections and or all of the above, that type of support. I understand you have young people who live there, but what about the youth who aren't living right there? How do you work with those young people? Well, most of the ones that we do work with are ones that have been accepted into our program. We've only had just a very few that we offered services to that were not accepted and within our housing program uh, because it's just much more easier for us to maintain contact with them when we know exactly where they're living. Because as we mentioned, many times they are floating from one place to another. And it's been difficult, you know, to keep track. 
So we do go through a process of uh, application, interview, uh, looking at some past documents from either placements they've been in before or DSS, you know, different things like that. And then we do place them within our housing program. And once they are accepted in our housing, then we do circle them with all these different supports and the case management, life coaching, you know, and all these other connections. Gotcha. But the coaches you mentioned, are they all staff members? Yes. Right now we are very small, which is just me as the life coach and then our case manager. So we give the services to all of the 10, you know, that would be in our program. Plus, we do have some alumni who have, after they finish their two years with us, if they agree to stay on, then they may move out of the housing. But yet we are kind of like that parent who's still around, you know, when the kid goes off to college, that they may call if they're in a bind or they do have questions, or even if they have some emergency that's come up and might need a little bit of financial support, then they know that they still have us, you know, to reach out to, and that can go on for the next year. So we do have some of those that are like an alumni stage too. Okay. And the the mental health support, is that on staff um, through the organization, the Children's Home Society of Virginia, or do you partner with local mental health agencies? Yes, that's another one that we do partner with, and we probably should have mentioned before. The case manager and I both have our master's degree within social work or counseling, and so we provide therapeutic services, but yet we do partner with um, another counseling agency who will also provide services like on-site now for our participants as to eliminate the barrier of transportation or just saying, I don't quite have time to get there, all those things they may say and that they will provide the services there on site. And that has been a wonderful partnership with them. They've had really good connections with our young people, and they've reported that it's been very helpful. So, yes, that's another good partner we have. Wonderful. Well, let me ask quickly about the COVID-19 crisis that we're in. How has that affected your organization and your ability to work with your youth I'm going to take a guess that maybe it hasn't been too terrible since your young people are there in your housing, but I imagine some changes had to be made. So help us understand what that's been like for you there. It's been very interesting of it, like everybody could say, of having to really regroup and do some innovative things you wouldn't have thought about doing before. So yes, thankfully, since they're within our housing, we've been able to really help them through that part of them not losing, you know, housing during this. But they've also been very fortunate, the ones that we've had with us during this COVID shutdown, have also been able to maintain their jobs for the most part. Oh, good. Yeah, that's been very fortunate. Uh, We've had a couple of them that's had hours cut back, and so we just kind of had to help them regroup in their money management and what to do when things like this come up because this isn't going to be the only time that your hours get cut in your life. And so how do you uh, rearrange your money and make your rent priority and things like that? As far as other services go, we just had to go to a virtual platform so that we would still see them, you know, face-to-face because we told them that was very important. We just didn't want to make phone calls. 
but we did want to see them face to face and you know how they were doing. So we've we've done that for our meetings, and then within that platform, we've had to deliver the services like that. So for my life coaching, uh, say maybe I was working with someone on some cooking skills at one point. Well, then this all happened, and we had to do this virtually. I mean, they just kind of carried me into the kitchen with them on their phone. And we actually, you know, did some things in the kitchen and, and talked about what we need to, you know, like that. So we, we try to do what we can, you know, through the virtual platform in the same way about their uh, educational goals as far as enrolling in school. They still met with their advisors and coaches at their local community colleges and making sure that they were enrolled and had all the paperwork done. We've had workshops on um, employment skills that we were talking about previously. That's been done virtually. Transportation has had to change some. We've had to use Uber a little bit more than we did when we were just providing it in, in person. But we just have to keep kind of changing to whatever way we feel like is best so that our services haven't been interrupted that much during all this, which we're very thankful for. Yeah, that that's great. It seems like there have been changes, but maybe minimal to make it all work. And how are things down in Virginia, uh, COVID-wise? We have, I think statewide, we average between about 750 and 900 new cases a day. But hospitalizations have been steady Folks on up on you know the ventilators and, and NICU has been steady or slowly dropping. So I think Virginia has taken COVID pretty seriously from the start. Um, we had a mask mandate before a lot of other places did. We have the first uh, workplace COVID nineteen laws uh, in the country, which uh, brings me back to practicing a little bit of law these days. Uh, <laughs> I'm helping some of my clients through that. I'd say I'd say we're doing okay compared to what I you know what you see some other places, but you know I think it also emphasizes how important the stability of the housing and the good apartment with good internet access and providing computers for those uh, young. We had a a partner who provided us with uh, twenty computers last year, so that we made sure that each of the young people in the program had a good working computer. And as we go to more online whether it's work or school or, or whatever we're doing, that just emphasizes how important it is to provide that stability of housing and computers and internet and the ability to function in this society as it's transformed itself. Right, exactly. Well, I want to make sure that I give you a little bit of time for you to share some more about the advocacy work that you do. I think we've touched on a little bit of it, but with the time that we have remaining, tell us what you've been doing, what your goals are, and share maybe how that has already made an impact possibly on young people. Sure. Really, when we started this program, part of our initial focus was uh, we did a 50-state survey of what sorts of programs were available for young people who have aged out that was uh, conducted for us by Child Trends. As a result of that survey, we created a task force here in Virginia to look at our systems and to make recommendations for the kinds of things that we could do to better support young people who have aged out and also to keep young people from aging out in the first place. And so that task force came up with a list of roughly 
24 suggestions for policy change going forward. We have a full-time policy analyst who works with us. She's also a lawyer. We're actually, for a, for a nonprofit that only has about 15 employees, we have three lawyers on staff. <laughs> Our president and CEO is, is a lawyer as well. We're very interested in making those kinds of systemic changes that we were talking about earlier. And some of the things that we've really been focusing on initially have been some reforms in the foster care system that are really aimed at at having kids not age out in the first place. And another legislative success that we had last year is one of the things that we noticed with the young people who had come into our program was that often their credit was destroyed. And it often was destroyed by some folks taking advantage of them while they were in the foster care system. And so we got a law passed here in Virginia that freezes a child's credit when they go into the foster care system. Wow. And we think that going forward, that's really going to help in terms of not having you know young people come out of, of foster care and, and have credit that's already been ruined by, through no, no fault of their own. We're working on a solution, which may be a legislative, maybe an administrative solution, to make sure that young people who have aged out have their Medicaid immediately and automatically renewed every year. One of the problems that we saw as well was that young people would come out of um, the foster care system. The social workers would lose track of them. They would move a lot. They might be homeless. And they didn't know how and weren't contacted to renew their Medicaid every year. And they're eligible, but if they don't renew, then if they go to the doctor, it's not covered. So we're working with our Department of Social Services to try to make that. And and if we can't get it through them, then we'll try to do it through a legislative solution to get that automatically renewed going forward. And that, we think, will make a big difference. But the bigger issues that we've been working on are that workforce stabilization. So improving pay for the social work teams at DSS, lowering caseloads, improving the computer system, and improving that training. We got all of that into the budget this year, and then COVID happened. And so we, the, the state thought it was going to have a billion-dollar budget deficit. Now it looks like it's only $250 million. But the legislature is coming back in a couple of weeks to look at the budget and decide what can stay and what can go. So we're working hard with our friends in the legislature to try to convince them that these are really incredibly important reforms going forward and, and reforms, frankly, that will save the state money in the long run. But it's really hard to say at this point. Yeah, well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. We appreciate it. <laughs> What great ideas, though. I mean, just fantastic changes if they can be made. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time together. I think what I'm going to do is ask each of you to answer this question. What is it that you love the most about the work that you do with My Path Forward? I guess I'll take that one first. I love being able to see the resiliency of some of these young people through all the things that they've been through and yet be able to come out with many of them a positive attitude and, a, and just the desire to make things better you know, in their life. And I enjoy working with them in, in that regard and feeling like that you might be making a small little difference in their life of being able to encourage them that they can do it, 
that there are other opportunities out there for them. And for several of them who talk about how they don't want to repeat in their own family what happened in their biological family or other things that they saw, just to be able to give them some of the tools and the resources and just maybe that trusting relationship that they need to have with another adult to let them know that things don't have to continue and that they can make the changes that they need to. And sometimes that's all it really takes for many people, just even in general, you know, is that one a trusted adult, and we hope that they're finding more than one within our program that they can trust and have a good working relationship with to let them know that things can be different and that they are on a good path going forward and to watch how many times that we see them be able to accomplish some of the goals that they come in with, even though they have a lot of barriers and getting there, just watching them you know, kind of plod through that and reach some of the milestones that they've wanted to you know, reach. So it's um, just a good, almost like one of those parenting feelings, you know, that you have of just thinking, hoping that, you know, you were a part of some of that success that they're enjoying. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Bruin, how about you? What do you love the most? You know, for me, I think it's seeing all this great work that our staff and our program participants do, and then having the opportunity to talk with folks, whether they're government folks or whether they're potential donors, and just watching the light go on when they learn about these young people who have aged out. Many people don't know about young people aging out at all. And when they learn about young people who have aged out and what our program can do to help them become independent members of society and how they can be a part of it. And that, to me, is the best part. Ah, fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for sharing. Now, if anybody wanted to get in touch with either of you to learn more about your program or maybe bounce some ideas off of you, possibly donate something to your organization, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Best way is to go to our website, which is CHSVA, Children's Home Society of Virginia, chsva.org. Okay. And the contact information is all there, I imagine. It's all there. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for participating today. I really enjoyed learning about my path forward and what you're doing with young people and for young people there in Virginia. And I do wish you all the best moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Well, for those listening, thank you so much for listening to the end of this podcast. Uh, As I say each week, we put one of these out every two weeks or so. So look for another one coming up in a couple of weeks. And we hope that you have a wonderful day.